This week, uh, this passage has weighed pretty heavily on my soul. Um, because there's some heavy topics in it that we're going to talk about tonight. We have seen, as we've gone through the Gospel of John, like I told you, we've seen uh, Nicodemus, the elite, coming to Jesus, and, and he seems like he's not going to be a very good disciple. Everything about him, you know, he's one of the Pharisees, he's, he's a royal kind of, uh, excuse me, not royal, but he's one of the Sanhedrin, so we know he's very established, he's very elite in Jewish society. And so it seems uh, unlikely that he's going to become a disciple. And then we see the Samaritan woman, right, an outcast from Jewish society, because she was Samaritan, she was hated, and yet she responds in faith. She responds in faith and becomes a disciple of Jesus. And then we saw the royal official. And the royal official was, uh, like I told you, a hated Jew. He worked for Herod, for King Herod, who was not a Jewish king and yet was called the Jewish king. And he was hated and yet he somehow came to belief. And now we come to this poor man by the pool of Bethesda. And we have to ask, will he respond in faith? Or will he reject Jesus? So we, as we read, um, we'll, we'll go through that again and, and explore that what that means. I had never really thought about it until I read this passage this week that uh, this doesn't guarantee that this man responds in faith because of a touch of Jesus, which is a tragedy, of course. In John 5.1 it says that there was a feast of the Jews, so we don't know what festival it is. John doesn't tell us specifically what festival of the Jews was happening at the time. But we know that Jesus is back in Jerusalem, right? That's the point of the feast, is to mention that Jesus is back in Jerusalem again. In chapter 4 he'd been in Galilee, and now he's back in Jerusalem. And we saw that Galilee's response to him was not favorable. In the same way as the other Jews, they also rejected their Messiah. Right? And now he's back in Jerusalem, and we're going to see how does Jerusalem respond to him now. In verse 2, it says that there is in Jerusalem a place by the sheep gate in the walls of the city, a pool which is called in Hebrew Bethesda. Bethesda is Hebrew or Aramaic, really, for the house of outpouring. Bethesda was a, an area with twin pools. I have actually visited there in Israel. My father and I went to Israel uh, a few years ago. And when we went there, we saw it. And there's a beautiful church built right there. It's in the present-day Muslim quarter of, uh, of the old city of Jerusalem. And it's, it's these two twin pools there. And it says it has five porticos. A portico, um, it'd be a roofed kind of walkway or a roofed area that, you know, we think of porticos like porches, right? A roofed with colonnades over a porch. Uh, but this would be an area which people could come and sit under it and be protected from inclement weather, right? From anything that would be rain or whatever else might be happening. And so what it says is because of these porticos, right? These areas where they were covered, all the disabled and the sick and the lame would come and sit under them. And so this whole area of Bethesda is littered with the sick and lame and disabled. And it's sad, of course, because 
that inherently makes it a place that's probably considered less reputable to be at, less, you know, uh, it's more unclean because all these people who are outcasts sit there. So it says in verse 3 that a multitude of those who are sick, blind, and lame, and withered sit there. And why did they sit there? It explains in verses, uh, the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, that they sat there because there was this tradition about an angel of the Lord coming down and stirring up the waters. And that whoever came and set foot in that, when the waters were stirred up, the first person in would be healed of whatever affliction they had. And um, it's interesting because verses, the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 uh, do not actually show up in the earliest manuscripts of the gospel. So uh, it's probably a later addition, these explanatory verses. And I think we can make easy sense of why. It's because the man talks about the stirring up of the water later in the passage. And so if you didn't understand the tradition that is explained in verse 3 and 4, um, you would have no context for what, what is happening when the man said, well, I can't get in the water, then it's stirred up. No one would understand that without this explanatory gloss, really. And so that was added later on. So it's probably not part of the original document, but that's why if you're looking at your, your, your Bible and you see kind of brackets around it or parentheses, that's why it's not in the earliest manuscripts. But the tradition is, is very well established, the tradition that the sick would come and there was this kind of healing power in the waters. And this passage is going to show that these waters that were ineffective for the lame man Jesus could take care of, right? Jesus is greater than the healing power of these waters that the man was waiting for. So it says in verse 5, A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? So we know it's really severe. Obviously he's had it for almost 40 years that this man has been afflicted. Um, he's probably an old man at this point, right? He's had this affliction for almost 40 years. And who knows how much life he'd lived prior to that. But it's a tragic scene, isn't it? This man sitting there. What is sh shocking to me, what is striking to me, is that, uh, remember it said that there's the lame and the withered and the sick all over this area. And we have to ask, why does Jesus come to this man? Out of everyone who was there, that Jesus could have gone. He could have gone around and, and touched everyone if he had wanted. Why does Jesus choose this man? I think it's a question that we have to ask. Why did Jesus choose this man? And he asked him, do you wish to get well? Jesus is so gracious in this scenario. And I love, I love watching the way Jesus interacts with people. Because he doesn't just heal him. He doesn't just reach out in touch. He asks the man if he's ready to be healed, if he wants to get healed, right? What's unique about that? Um, this may not make sense to anyone who has not had a long-term condition or a long-term uh, affirmity of some kind. But the reality is that the condition really becomes part of who you are. It becomes constructive for your identity, right? Imagine being lame for 40 years and, and how much a part of your life it has become at that point. 
The only the only way I can I, I can think to explain it in my own terms uh, is I've lived with Tourette's for now 33 years, right? I was diagnosed with Tourette's at five. I have OCD symptoms, uh, so anxiety disorder type things, as well as you know tics, which if you know anything about Tourette's, they have kind of neurological impulses where you can't control certain parts of your body. They do different things you don't mean to, things like that. And um, the only thing I can describe it as is how I've experienced that. And I have, for my whole life, I've said, man, even if I could get healed of that, I wouldn't. I wouldn't get healed of it if I was given the option because it has been so shaping to my identity. I, I have no doubt that having Tourette's and having these things in my life that I can't control um, has shaped me to be a compassionate person have shaped me to love people deeper than I would have without it. And so that's the only context I think I can give in my own life to explain that question. That Jesus is so gracious, he even asked that. Like, are you prepared for the identity shift that would come with that? To be rid of your infirmity. And it's only recently, even in my own life, that I've come to the place where I recognize that I, I'm not my OCD, I'm not my Tourette's. Because it's so tied into everything I do, right? I can't escape my own mind. And so it really is a part of who I am. And, and so I, I, it's interesting, over the last few years, I've asked myself that question. like, Could I get rid of it? Who would I be if I got rid of it? And I think, uh, just to stop for a moment and think about Jesus, how wonderful he is to know this man's condition and know this man's heart, and to stop in compassion, to ask him if it if it's something he even desires. Is this something he really wants? You know, he's lived this way for 40 years. Or he really wants something different. And the man seems to misunderstand, right? He doesn't know that Jesus is offering to heal him. He misunderstands and he thinks, well, this man must not know why I can't get healed. Obviously, he's laying by the pool of Bethesda that has this tradition about the healing. So he explains, well... Listen, sir, I, I can't get down into the water because I'm lame. I have no friend here to help me. No friend who would push me into the water when the water's stirred up. And so every time I get near to it, someone else goes before me. Someone else steps down into the water, and they're healed and I'm not. So Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your pallet and walk. And it says immediately, the man became well. At a word from Jesus, the man is healed instantly. And what's he do? He gets up. He picks up his pallet and he begins to walk. And John's held on to a little tidbit of information until this section. We're all impressed with Jesus at this point, right? Jesus, the man who can speak a word and someone is healed from their lameness. But John's hidden a little fact from us and he says it next. Oh, this great healing's happened. But it was the Sabbath. By the way, it was the Sabbath on which this man was healed. And so the Pharisees saw him walking around carrying his mat and they say to him, why are you breaking the Sabbath? Why are you carrying your pallet around? 
So Sabbath, as, as you know, I'm sure if you know the Bible, um, is a day of rest, right? It's a day of rest. And it was forbidden to do any work on the Sabbath. Now that's what the Torah tells us in, in the Old Testament, that they were forbidden to do work. But it doesn't qualify what an instance of work would be, for example. It doesn't say, this is work, this is work, this is work, and this is not work, this is not work. And so the Jews, in their traditions, what they call the oral law, right? It wasn't just the written law, which is what we have in the scriptures. They also had rabbis who had interpreted the Bible and spoken out really new law, and the Jews followed the oral law as well. And so they had all these rules and fences to protect themselves from breaking the Sabbath, right? The idea would be like, listen, we don't even want to get close to breaking the Sabbath. So what rules can we put in place to make sure we never do it? Make sure we never break the Sabbath. And so what the Jews had done is put all these different categories and classes around what was considered work and what wasn't. And of course, carrying something, and what that means is carrying a burden is what they would call it, his pallet, would be considered work to carry this pallet this mat from one place to another would be considered work and so they see him and they instantly say you're a sabbath breaker who told you to pick up your pallet and walk and he says well the man who healed me i think we should be struck by the fact that this man doesn't even know who jesus is jesus heals him and he seems to not have any further interest and checking out who Jesus is, and finding out why he was able to heal him, and finding out his identity even, his name. He has no idea who Jesus is. He heals him, and it says that when Jesus healed him, Jesus slipped away into the crowd, right? Remember, it's a feast. So there's people everywhere. Everyone comes back to Jerusalem for the feast, and there's people everywhere. And so Jesus slips into the crowd and leaves. And this man does not know who Jesus is. But the Pharisees want to know. The Jews, the ruling class, right? They want to know who it is that healed him. Who would dare break the Sabbath in commanding this man to do work? It says afterward in verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple. The pool of Bethesda was right near the temple in that area of, um, of Jerusalem. And so it's right close. And so the man is probably just walking about his way and Jesus finds him again from the crowd. And Jesus says this to him, Behold, you have become well. Right? He's been healed. Now don't sin any longer lest something worse happen to you. And here's the first hard teaching we have to accept. The first hard teaching we have to accept from this passage and remind ourselves of is that sometimes our afflictions are directly related to our own sins. And that's not a pleasant, that's not a pleasant lesson, is it? What Jesus says, you've become well, don't sin anymore or something worse will happen to you, means that this man's lameness is directly connected 
to his own sin. Now, I will be the first to say, not all sin is directly connected to illness or affliction, right? We know that. In fact, in a very similar story, we're going to see in John 9, that remember the, the disciples say to Jesus, look at the man born blind. Who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus, of course, says, neither him nor his parents sinned, but that the glory of God might be shown through him. He was born that way, right? He was born that way so that the glory of God might be shown. So clearly, in the man born blind, it's not his sin that caused his blindness. So it's not all sin that causes affliction. And, and it's not necessarily, you know, uh, like we could categorize it, right? Like, oh, okay, if you're lame, that must be because of your sin. And if you're blind, then it wasn't. We just know it's different from case to case. But we also have to admit that sometimes our sin does cost us something. And Jesus makes it very clear that in this case, 38 years of lame affliction was because of this man's sin. And what should, what should terrify him, of course, is that Jesus says, and if you continue in your sin, something even worse will happen to you. Your lameness was mild compared to what could come next, right? I think we have to reckon with that. We have to think about the reality that sometimes our own afflictions can come because of our own sin. And sometimes for other people. I don't think it's our place to try and qualify that for people, right? I don't think we need to go around and say, well, let's figure out if this person's sin is what caused their affliction. But I think we have to reckon with the reality that it does happen. It does happen. And even more tragic than that, what's the man's response to Jesus? Jesus gives him a rebuke, gives him a warning. And the man's response in verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The man responds to his healing by betraying Jesus. The man knows the Pharisees are seeking him. The, the, the man knows they're looking for this healer, this Sabbath breaker. The man knows that Jesus has healed him, and his first impulse is to go to the Pharisees to tell that Jesus is the one who has healed him so that they might seek him out. He knows they're going to persecute him. He knows that they clearly don't have fond feelings for Jesus. That they're antagonistic, they're hostile. And this man goes to rat Jesus out, really. And I think that's the second hard lesson of the evening from this passage. And we have to be aware of it. Miracles do not guarantee faith. Having a personal touch of God on your life or your body does not guarantee that you will respond in belief. And I, I can't say for anyone else, I, I can say for myself, I know people who have experienced genuinely miraculous things who have turned from God. 
who have turned their back. Genuine miracles, unexplainable, supernatural phenomena. Who have turned away from God or live like it doesn't really matter if God is in their life, though they may call themselves a Christian. That is a, a, a tragedy, and it, and it weighs heavy on my soul to even think about it, because this man is healed by the very word of Jesus. And he, res he responds with betrayal. He responds with betrayal. Remember back in John 3, it said that Jesus knew what was in men's hearts. And he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in men's hearts. And I think this shows us the extraordinary grace of Jesus. Remember that question I asked you earlier. A question I asked about why did Jesus seek out this man? This man. I think it's because Jesus knew his sin had caused his affliction and he was offering him a chance to repent. Jesus, supremely gracious, offers this man a chance to repent of his sin and be rid of his affliction and inevitably ends up getting betrayed because of it. This is where you start to see the turn in the opposition to Jesus, which we'll see next week. Next week, Jesus is going to, it says they start to seek to kill him. As we read the rest of chapter 5 next week. And in some ways, this has all started because this man tells the identity of Jesus to the Pharisees. It's a foreshadowing, right? It's a foreshadowing, just like Judas, that there are others who would betray Christ. <clears throat> I think Jesus sought this man out to offer him a chance to repent. And I think we have to look at that as we look at the lessons that come from this passage. I think there's two major lessons that come from this passage that we can think about about what it means to be a good Christian, a good human. And I think the first, I've mentioned several times, but I think we also have to think about it in terms of ourselves. Look at Jesus' grace. Look at Jesus' grace in healing this man who would betray him. He offers it openly. It is not conditioned. It is not preempted on, if you have enough faith, then I will heal you. It is not preempted on, okay, well, you better believe in me after I heal you. This is the grace of God. Right? Remember John 3.16, which I'm sure you all know. The most famous verse in the Bible. What's it say? God so loved the world. What world? The world that had arrayed itself against him. The world that had lined up in hostility against that very God. God sent his son to die for that world. And it did not guarantee that they would believe. It offered them a chance to believe. It offered them a chance to believe, but it did not guarantee that they would believe. And Jesus came and died and paid for the sins 
of the world. And many would spit on him in return, would turn their back on him, would betray him despite that. I think we have to ask ourselves, how do we condition our grace to other people? How do we condition our grace towards other people? What do we have in our head that we're always saying, man, I I am so sick and tired of offering grace to this person in my life. I'm so tired of it. I've done it again and again and again and again, and they always, you know, they always give me a slap in the face in return. They're never thankful enough. They're never grateful. You know, it's it's a one-sided relationship. I give and give and give, and they offer nothing in return. This man went beyond offering nothing to Jesus, but instead actually actively harmed him. If we want to be like Jesus, if we want to become like him, we have to learn to extend even to those we have to learn to extend grace even to those who would betray us even to those who would actively be hostile to us John 5 teaches us that in fact like i said Jesus might have sought this man out to offer him forgiveness and a chance to repent And the second is this. The second lesson is this. We all need to be reminded to tend to our faith. To guard our faith. To think about our faith. To watch it. To contemplate it. Because miracles in the touch of God do not ensure faithfulness on our part. You can be genuinely touched by God. You can be genuinely healed and not respond in faithfulness. This man is touched, he's healed, and he does not believe. We have to look at our own hearts. We have to look at our own faith and ask ourselves, are we doing the same? That's not directed at anyone in particular. That's directed at all of us. That's a warning for all of us. That's a warning for me. The fact that I can preach the word of God, the fact that I know the Bible, the fact that I can do all these things does not guarantee faithfulness on my part. The fact that the Lord uh, is with me does not guarantee my faithfulness to him. We have to tend to our faith. We have to work at it. We have to walk in it. Which is one of John's favorite metaphors for living out the Christian life, right? In in the letter of 1 John, which obviously the author of the Gospel of John also wrote the letter of 1 John. And in it, he uses this metaphor of walking over and over, right? Walk in it, right? Walk in faithfulness. And that's so, 
uh, such typical language to us as Christians, we don't recognize that it's a metaphor. You know, it could be said a, a bunch of different ways, but walking, this idea of walking, is really a key metaphor for John, and he uses it all the time to talk about that spiritual obedience, that spiritual following of God. And John uses that, especially in his, in his letters, in his epistles. In 1 John, he talks about walking in obedience. And I think here, when we get to John 5, there's a huge irony in this passage around that concept. Because the lame man walks, but not in faith. He walks physically, but he does not walk spiritually. In fact, his spiritual condition is still just as crippled as his physical body was before Jesus' touch. And that is the true tragedy of the passage. He may physically walk, but he has not believed and he has not left his spiritual lameness behind. And we need to look at our own hearts and ask, where are the lame parts in us? Where are the crippled parts in us that we should ask Jesus to come in touch? The things that he would come to us and say, do you want to get well? And that we should be open and faithful to say, yes, Lord, touch these areas of my life. Heal the crippledness of my soul. Heal the lame parts of me, the parts that don't walk in faithfulness to you, the parts that do not rise up, pick up their mat, and walk towards you, Jesus. Would you heal those places? We all have to do that. We all have to do that. And that's what I have to say this week. And my prayer for you all this week is that we would all seek that out. We would all ask Jesus, not only ask him for his healing touch, but ask him to reveal those parts in us that are lame. Those parts in us that are crippled before him. We need his touch today, just like this man needed his touch and just remember that God offers his grace to the world freely. And that you may not always get the response you want. You may not always get the results you desired when you do something for someone else. When you offer them love or grace or generosity or hospitality. But God extends it because he loves, not because he expects. We must do the same. We must do the same. Let me bless you, and then we'll, we'll close. Lord, I pray a blessing over each person who's here together in this room or on the computer right now. Lord, I pray that you would touch them in the areas of spiritual weakness and infirmity in their life. This, the weakness and crippledness of their hearts, wherever that may be, Lord, you know, for you know men's hearts. I pray you would touch those areas in each person 
pray you would let people know what they are so that they can respond to you in faithfulness. And I do pray, Lord, that you would touch their hearts, touch their souls. Help them to respond in belief because we believe you are a God who even helps our belief. And so we pray, we pray. You would help us to respond in faithfulness and in belief. Help us to search out those areas and submit them to you that you might tell us to be made whole by your powerful word. And that we might become whole because of you, Jesus. Bless each person, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm. Love you all. Thanks for being here tonight.